This is John Hockenberry down in Mexico City, and traffic is what people talk about here in this place of sprawl and history, humanity, and density. How long will it take to get from point A to point B, people ask. And the cabbies will always volunteer a prediction, but the really wise folks shake their heads and say, I don't know, it depends on the traffic. If we don't get cities right, the whole planet will go off the cliff. At an MIT-sponsored conference here this week, they are talking about intelligent cities. Kent Larson of the MIT Media Lab says high-density places, places with traffic jams, are in fact the most efficient places in the world, but they just have to get smarter. Cities are the solution. I, I really do believe it's where most of the wealth will be created. It's where most of the ideas will come from. It's where women will find equality. And a high-density city is an incredibly efficient machine. Here on the campus of Mexico's version of MIT, in a building that's painted orange on the outside and hot pink on the inside, people like architect Niels von Downing have hope. And Downing is working on a project to make streetlights intelligent, to dim when no one is around, to save energy. He says the options for cities that want to change have never been greater. Cities have to uh, evaluate their priorities carefully and not be driven by um, uh, sometimes megalomanic uh, ambitions that you see in some of the cities on this planet. When you involve your citizens actively in setting those priorities, you can achieve great results. Sustainability, all these scientists say, is about mobilizing the genius of the citizens to make changes that everyone can have a stake in. MIT's Carlo Rotti says you can even recreate the creative vitality of Silicon Valley in a place like Mexico City because other big cities have done the same. I think everybody is astonished at what New York and the mayor achieved in just a few years, uh, you know, and how New York has been now a real competitor to Boston and to, and to San Francisco for this type of activity. Traffic is something of a metaphor for this city of hope that's also on edge. As you travel from neighborhood to neighborhood, the contrasts are astounding. Blink and a barrio becomes Beverly Hills. Gated splendor becomes gated squalor. Stucco buildings covered with ivy become walls covered in graffiti. You glimpse the past here in this city that has been around since the 1300s and has become the largest Spanish-speaking city in the world. Everything reused, repurposed, new money living in old buildings, sustainability, recycling. You might say Mexico City has been doing that for centuries. This is The Takeaway. I'm John Hockenberry in Mexico City. And there's one person here who, when he talks about sustainability, people really listen. He's the man who won the Nobel Prize in chemistry in 1995 for his work on chlorofluorocarbons. Mario Molina won the Nobel Prize for figuring out that industrial compounds would destroy the Earth's ozone layer. CFCs from aerosol products were threatening the planet. He sounded the alarm. A chemist who helped save the planet, now he's trying to help save Mexico City from itself. Since Dr. Mario Molina won his Nobel Prize, he's been leading an effort to keep the air above Mexico City clean and the growth of this city of more than 21 million sustainable. Question number one, can a city of this size survive? It, it is a very big challenge and uh, it's uh, a question that when I was still a professor at MIT, we decided to address as, as an example of interdisciplinary work because it requires not just chemistry but social sciences, economy and of course other, as, other sciences as well, meteorology and so on and so forth. But the challenge is enormous because it's indeed very many people and we're trapped in a valley. However, it is possible even for such a large city 
to clean the air. And simultaneously, not just look at the environmental component in isolation, but it's coupled to other aspects of the functioning of the city, like the transportation to the extent that the city gets jammed and, and with congestion, there is more contamination, but also less efficiency. People spend hours just getting from one place to another. That's not a, an efficient city. So more recently, we've recognized very explicitly that to deal with problems like Mexico City, we need to work with issues that, that have to do with the economy, social issues as well, to make the city attractive, and environmental issues that this what guarantees, of course, sustainable development so that it actually lasts. How would you say Mexico City is ahead of other cities of its size in the world, Beijing, um, Lagos, uh, some cities in the United States, and how is it behind, do you think, some of the cities? Mm -hmm. I think Mexico is ahead in many cities in terms of recognizing the nature of the problem and recognizing that it takes a, a concerted effort, again, of collaboration between government and society responding to, to, to these types of measures. Uh, we are certainly behind in Mexico City in terms of making a, a, a very livable city. To, it, there, is a, there are many possibilities to making it a, a, greener, a green city, more parks, but also what we call to recovering the public space so that uh, one can actually wander in the city. This is beginning to happen, for example, in, in the central part of Mexico, the, the historical center. That was recognized, and so there are some streets where cars are not allowed. It's just for pedestrians. And, of course, this is not new. That, that's something that... Mexico City could copy out of, of the success of other cities. But what is new is the fact that it's huge and that these sort of things can be implemented. I would mention one more thing as, as a scientist. We used Mexico City because of its size and the, the, the enormous amounts of emissions as a laboratory. So we were able to carry several uh, projects field experiments involving uh, scientists from all over the world to better understand the nature of the pollution, which is complicated chemistry, actually. And we were actually quite successful there. So I think what, what was learned in terms of how a polluted city functions, how these chemicals affect air quality, uh, is, was probably and is still being very useful for all the cities in our planet. Finally, when you won the Nobel Prize... Did you win the Nobel Prize for chemistry or for saving the ozone layer? Well, I was, I was not part of the <laughs> committee that decided, but I believe in, in the tradition of the Nobel Prize it was a combination because it was, the science was important. It was basic science, fundamental science, but applied to a societal problem. And in fact, I was surprised when I received the news because there were really no precedents for Nobel Prizes for global environmental issues. But uh, fortunately, the precedent is there now, and it means, going back to the, our earlier question, that it is quite possible and quite important, in fact, to connect applied science to these uh, values of humanity that we were talking about, and uh, 
uh, many Nobel Prizes are strictly done for the very fundamental science, but I recognize that some of them, certainly the Peace Prize, yes, but in the sciences, it's, it's, it's less common to uh, sort of directly involve the societal issues. Although, I, let me give you one more example. Uh, the discovery of the laser okay, has, has enormous benefits for society. It's a Nobel Prize, but when it was discovered, it was a very fundamental, very abstract uh, finding that it, it was at that time hard to predict how much benefit for society it would have. So in, along those lines, let me just finish by saying that what's important with Nobel Prizes is to focus attention on the importance of science for society and the fact that it can be applied for the betterment of society. Well, you've done both. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. Pleased to be here.